Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello. Hello and welcome to the Hobcast book show. It is show number 40. We should have balloons or something, shouldn't we? Well, you've got balloons outside. You don't like balloons. I don't mind metallic ones. Yeah, well, you've got metallic balloons outside, which says 50. And don't get excited. It's not for me. No, it was for your youngest, Toby, aged 11, has done 50 park runs. Yeah, so he had to run. I mean, I don't know how he did this without being um, embarrassed because they're bright pink. And they're enormous, and they were tied to the back of his top, and he ran five k with these this five and a zero following him. They're huge balloons. They aren't are they? huge. They're bigger than he I'm is. I'm surprised he didn't take off. <laughs> There's not much of him. Uh, no, that's a wonderful achievement for Toby. Uh, congratulations to him. Anyway, the the program today, we have Ollie Jarvis as our guest, the author of The Genesis Inquiry, an international thriller with historical connections it's 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 <laughs> Love the way you said that well it, it's uh, it, it's hard to categorize but um you know it's closest sort of uh obvious equivalent is something like the da vinci code but trust me oh but it's so much better written than that <laughs> i was gonna say <laughs> <laughs> i read the da vinci code and i couldn't understand <laughs> no I, 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 I no i well i could see i mean it was a page turner and i love the mystery of it and the mystery and but, clues and all that stuff but this is a brilliant intelligent wonderful book Described by Stephen Fry as uh, compulsively readable, a real, a real winner. winner. Yes, yeah. but I think the difference is well. I think I think that that what Dan Brown did is he created a story. It was just such a great story. So it didn't actually matter that it was averagely written in terms of prose. You know, it, well, it, it it appealed to that. You know, all of Dan Brown's books kind of hang together on a whole bunch of hokum basically uh cobbled together stuff um because we all want to believe that there are threads that we're being that are being held back from us so yeah. in the case of the da vinci code and angels and demons it's all about the catholic church in fact most of his books are about the catholic church and that you know it's hidden in the vaults of the vatican are the secrets that they want to keep from us and that sort of conspiracy theory with all the historical clues um just carries you along um you know it, it it is a page turner it's true i mean we do love the idea that there is more to the world than we see and there's, there's something hidden and there's some con- yeah there's a conspiracy and about that, it we love that idea uh, and and indeed ollie has done something similar in the sense that you know he has found uh he's looked for patterns in history and found one which really leads us to a brilliant conclusion in the book but it's superbly written characters are great you cannot put it down it is uh it's a real winner yeah i think one of the bloggers so we had a blog we're still going the blog tour for ollie's book and one of them um she said she just couldn't go to sleep until she'd read another chapter then another chapter and so i apologize i'm really sorry that well, i kept I, you awake <laughs> i felt the same way when i read it myself you know i was absolutely glued and you know you know how 
what a flibbergibbit I am in terms of, you know, wanting to do about six things at once um, and barely paying attention to any of them. Um, that's me. But, you know, I couldn't I couldn't put it down either. So no, anyway. I remember it very well. Anyway, we should say who we are because I don't think we have yet. No, we haven't. No, we haven't. So this is the Hobcast Book Show. And we are Adrian Hobart. And Rebecca Collins, still so, a little croaky. You are a little croaky, uh, a lot better than you were. And uh, you even did a park run yourself yesterday, so uh, congratulations. Yes, but I spent the afternoon lying in bed because yeah. I couldn't move. <laughs> and we are Hobeck Books. We uh, are UK independent publishers of the following genres. Thrillers. Crime. Mystery. And suspense. And um, we are proud to represent... 17 authors at the moment and uh, more to follow as we've been working through some submissions which have been well, mind-blowingly good frankly uh, most of them it's it, it, uh, yeah it, it's it's amazing isn't it had the caliber of people who were out there writing and looking for for publishers to publish their books they are so good some of them yeah absolutely no it's 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 pretty awesome um you know and let's go back to our genesis and what a couple of years ago we were thinking where do we get our authors from i know, <laughs> well, I know. trust me there's, there's no no shortage so uh yeah exciting times and, and but it's 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 quite a a big process for us to go through we've got over 50 submissions working through them all um it's taking us well it'll take us a couple more weeks yet yeah at least yeah um, i mean we, we had lofty ambitions to read five a day and day one fine managed to get through five <laughs> Day two, uh, I think there was a some sort of hiccup. I can't remember what it was, but only one got through on day two to be read. Day three, I think four. Yeah. Day four again. Well, it was disastrous. Dodgy day. <laughs> well, it was dodgy day because I was stuck in a on the motorway but for I think, seven hours. I think we've, I think uh, we've been through thirteen or fourteen, which is not bad actually. No, it's not too bad. But so you know, we've, we've got, got, we've got another forty to go. Yeah, we've got a lot, to, <laughs> lot to get through. So. Uh, bear with us for those of uh, you listening who have submitted to yeah, us. Yeah, um, we are we are working very hard to get through them, and yeah, and we're enjoying it. We're absolutely loving it. Yeah, it's 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 pretty special. Well, uh, Ollie Jarvis to come. Then Let, let's get into the news. And there's some there's some real cracking news items this week. Not so much sort of industry news, just some really fantastic anecdotal stuff. I think. Um, first of all, I'd, I'd like to bring up the subject of Sebastian Fuchs, who was at the uh, it's it's the Cheltenham Literary Festivals at the moment. It was, yeah. I think it's finished now, but it. Uh, yeah, I th- maybe it has. But um, well, I know that one of my former colleagues was comparing something yesterday with Tom Daly. So oh, maybe, maybe it finishes today. Sunday, yeah, yeah. As so we record, it, it's it's a it's a big deal that that festival it does attract huge numbers you know 1400 in the audience yeah it's a big deal yeah anyway sebastian fuchs has said that you know in the current context of all the things that have happened culturally um he doesn't feel that he should in fact he has chosen in his latest book to not describe his female characters at all to leave it to the imagination completely um because he feels uncomfortable I mean, when you first said that, I thought he that was like a sort of a stylistic choice. And, and when you said that first, I thought that's quite interesting. You know, I thought I, I quite like the idea of that. If you, if because I always like uh, if you leave more to the imagination of the reader, you're giving them 
more credit for their intelligence. And I like that. I don't like it when everything is described. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so, first of all, I thought, oh, that's fantastic. I, I really like that idea. But then you went on further to explain why his motive for that. And I thought... Fear. That is, that is very... To me, that's very depressing. Because to me, part of the skill of being a writer is being able to take yourself out of your own body, your own culture, your own uh, experiences, and live as if you weren't yourself and you were someone else, whatever, whether it's somebody of a different gender, somebody of a different uh, ethnic um, origin, somebody... I mean, you, you know, say you wanted to write a, a book from the perspective of somebody from a different planet. What's wrong with... You know, for me, I think that's a, that's a challenging... Well, that's cultural but... mis- misappropriation, surely, for the aliens. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, look, it's a really big problem. I think that, uh, you know, if if you... If this current movement of doct- the, the doctrine that you can only write what you know, it, it's impossible. Nothing gets created if that's the case. Absolutely nothing. Uh, what do you have to, you know, if I'm writing a female character, do I have to basically give that to somebody else to do? Or well, your book has to be, if it's in the first person, it has to be a, a, a... 50, 51-year-old. 51-year-old, <laughs> past it, you know, flabby, ginger-haired, so, toothless idiot. You yeah. know, the argument, if you take the argument <laughs> so far, you could say you couldn't write as somebody who's um, uh, a male from the north of England because you've never, you, you know, your, your origins are the there. south. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, I mean, I say that's only a slight difference to you now. So a white, middle-aged man born in manchester you can't write that because you don't have that experience. No, well, I, you know this is that's the extreme um extent of this but you know he's made a decision that that, that he you know doesn't want the, the hassle of being accused of you know um describing and yeah look the best authors are the ones who can convey character without having to tell you uh you know is hair color really relevant Arguably, I mean, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But the, the, I mean, let's be honest. I don't meet somebody and go, oh, they've got the fashionable bob cut, uh, you know, <laughs> with oh, and they're wearing such and such uh, label. Uh, and I don't I usually pay attention to the shoes, or but you know, authors often and looking at the submissions, one or two have, I wouldn't say fallen into a trap, but have chosen to. to describe every character comes in gets a paragraph of what they're wearing um and i don't mean just like a couple of lines i mean six or seven lines with every single element of their attire uh you know conveyed and it's quite unnecessary it is and i i i I like it when they are able to because they might have a picture in their head of this person but they're able to convey that without um sort of direct description. So mm. they might say something about their body language or there was their reaction to a comment or something and that immediately puts an image in your head as the reader. And it might not be the same one, but it puts an image so that you you know, you're creating the character as well based on it's a bit like, you know, art when people say you need to know what the artist intended and what the artist meant by painting the whatever it is that they painted. No you don't, not at all. As long as you get something out of it, as long as you interpret it in some way. And it's the same with fiction. It doesn't matter if my 
um, Ella Blake looks completely different to Ollie's Mella, Ella Blake. Yeah, that's true. And, and yeah, that's a good example. You know, if you read the Genesis Inquiry, uh, then you get a real... Imp- I mean, actually, it, it, the skill is in the dialogue and the, the characters come through. Um, and the appearance, yeah, it's pretty scant, actually. I mean, I, there are bits where you hear about Ella putting her robes on to become, you know, go into the courtroom. Yeah. And the transition that makes from her day-to-day appearance, um, because she's uh, sort of uh, lived out of a van for three years after a breakdown, um, and suddenly, you know, she puts on the wig and the gown and the um, whatever else that barristers need to wear, uh, and suddenly her whole demeanour changes. She puts a bit of makeup on for the first time in three years as well. And she she feels that transformation, and that works. So you 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 know in reverse you get the feeling that you know you know that she really was a bit of a scruff in the uh, in, in the opening chapters. <laughs> yeah, so that's a good, really good example of what I'm talking about. He doesn't say she she <laughs> she doesn't describe her uh, sort of um, casual appearance in no. the first part of the book, but that by. Transfer, transforming into the barrister and into the... the, the well, I, the only other times that you get any indication is that, you know, perhaps her, her daughter hasn't seen her for a bit, says, God, you're looking rough, Mum. <laughs> or indeed her, the clerk of her chambers who goes to visit her and, and goes, you know, uh, when was the last time you had a wash kind of thing? And it's... it's um, you get... So, you know, it's by inference, but it's not by the author going... She was wearing X, Y, Z. But also from that, you get the impression of what she was previously, yeah, which is absolutely. actually very important to the story. So, you know, he's saying they are, they've only seen... The last time they saw her was what she was like in her proper mm-hmm. uh, sort of... Yeah, you know, her, her professionally, the, yeah. the lead, one of the leading barristers. But he doesn't say it directly, but yeah. you get that. So uh, anyway. Well, <laughs> look, we, we can go on for hours, and, and, and many of you won't have read the book, but you should. Yes, oh, you absolutely should. And there will be a little preview of... Uh, oh, yeah, it's a bit of puffing for myself i suppose um i've taken a key scene from the novel which i've been recording for audio uh albeit i haven't managed to do any for three weeks now because my voice has only just come back really the last couple of days um but nonetheless uh, you'll get a, a little snippet from one of the key scenes at the beginning of the genesis inquiry as part of that interview ollie job is coming up okay so really on that theme of um the febrile nature of uh, gender politics and things like that that are affecting the literary world. Uh, quite an entertaining story that you spotted. <laughs> and we both spotted it because it was all over Twitter this week. Yes. Um... So um, I, I will get her formal title, but uh, we're talking about uh, uh, Julie Bindle. Julie Bindle. So she's uh, an academic um, from London and uh, she's written a book. Um, and as all authors do, I know everybody loves to do this when they write a book, they love to go to their local Waterstones to see if it's on the shelf, if it's <laughs> on display. So she went to uh, one Waterstones and then she sort of, I think she carried on, didn't she? She went to five in total. Um, and she asked in one of them, if that's right, uh, you know, well, where's my book? And, and it was out the back. It was out the back. And they were like, oh, sorry. And they got it out the back. And she thought... She was outraged. I mean, she said it's disgraceful and all this sort of stuff on, on Twitter and it then set up a whole load of memes, not least from other authors who, you know, let's be honest with you. There is a limited space. Um, And don't forget, this week, 
In the UK market was Super Thursday, when the biggest titles prior to Christmas come out. It is the tradition. It's uh, it's an absolute slew of amazing books. Yeah, comes out in the early lots October. Lots of hardbacks as well. Lots of celebrity Absolutely. biographies. Absolutely. And... Oh, all that stuff. You know, but all the all the big push titles that the big traditional publishers want to push with loads of money behind them. Yeah, we used to do the same. Even at Oxford University Press, where it's an academic press, we yeah. would have our what we call our tradie books, which were the companions to food and wine, mm. and they had to publish on that day. They just had to. Yeah, so it's a bit febrile. And, you know, Waterstones, some of them massive. Obviously, the big sort of city ones are huge. But then the ones that are on the average high street in Solihull or whatever uh, are pretty small, actually. And, yeah, there is an el- a tiny element of the staff being given uh, autonomy as to what they display. But basically, head office is telling them what goes on and where. And, indeed, a major publishers pay for their books to be on the tables. The ones, you know, so there's the new bookshelves, there's the best, you know, the best sellers. And then there's the tables where you might have, you know, buy one, get one free or whatever it might be in different genres. And people pay for those positions. Mm. Now, this is actually, I mean, what uh, Julie Bindle, who's a you know feminist academic, uh, was complaining about was actually prompted by another academic who said that she couldn't find her book. In oh. <laughs> so we're, we're talking about uh, Professor Kathleen Stock. And she spoke out after a member of Waterstones did not want to have her book, Material Girls, Why Reality Matters for Feminism. Uh, because they didn't want it displayed too prominently. And uh, she complained about that. And that then, uh, you know, uh, Judy Bindle had her book out and she went to search these waterstones across London and was outraged that they weren't available, it wasn't on display. But there is a limit to how much is on display. It is unfair in the sense that, you know, frankly, waterstones are there. Uh, they're trying to sell books. They're trying to sell. Of course, they are. They're a business at the They're end of the bi- day. Ultimately, yeah. This is not foils, which basically stocks everything. <laughs> it's not heifers in Cambridge, where academic books um, actually are more prominent in general than that, or used to be. Certainly. Or like Blackwells, even. Yeah, exactly. Blackwells in Oxford, um, where academic books are as prominent as general. Yeah, well, that's know, why you go to shops like that. You go there because you're looking for. Non-fiction. My initial feeling was when I read that was just wind your neck in. I mean, seriously. I mean, look, I'll be honest with you. This is something I witnessed once. So in the 1980s, I think I may have mentioned it on the podcast before, I was working at Heifers. And um, I was working in the stationery store. So this is, it's now Waterstones, actually. But um, the fact is that uh, they had a number of stores across Cambridge, different types of, you know, they had a paperback bookshop, they had a children's bookshop. Uh, they had the main one in Trinity Street, opposite Trinity College. And Geoffrey Archer went in. Uh, he'd had a new release and was absolutely, because he's a Cambridge author, he lives in Grantchester. And he was horrified that mm-hmm. his book was not in the front window. And so the Heifers family, uh, it was family run at the time, it's now owned by Blackwells, uh, you know, panicked and then... You know, next time Jeffrey Archer came into town, there was a huge display <laughs> of his books, you know, Cain and Abel and all that stuff, you know. Um, and so there was a good example of someone being outraged. And I remember having to face a very irate Jermaine Greer, not because the books weren't 
prominent, but because she couldn't get the sort of right stuff that she wanted. But basically, it was a it was a family firm who would be heavily influenced. If someone famous came in and said, I'm not happy, they bent over backwards to make them happy. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it depends on the degree of fame as it would do, but... But, you know, the bottom line is is that you know, for some a publisher of our size, you know, one or two of our books have made it into Waterstones. Yeah, I mean, Fatal Trade in um, Western Supermare. Yeah, and there's a family connection in the store, yeah. so that helped Brian price get his book into because like you stones. said they have it they have a little bit yeah, of a little leeway bit of, a in little bit of an can, autonomy you know so yeah. you can go into your water stones and argue look i'm a local author and there's any chance you could stop and they some... do they have they, done they, that they, they do do that. and signings as well they have done I'd yeah say. absolutely uh and then you know mark whiteman getting nominated for the mcavani prize and the debut prize for bloody scotland also got them to buy the book in yeah in scottish stores so again but it's not something that a publisher of our um sort of position i mean there are two factors here we're quite small we don't have limitless funds uh, to buy ourselves into waterstones we don't have a representative going around to the shops selling our books uh as yet because we're too small we're also too new you know uh, let's be honest publishers of our size appear all the time and disappear all the time yeah you know and uh you know we're looking to be here for the for the long term but at this stage our reputation and credibility in the retail space is extremely limited. I mean, in terms of, you know, people aren't aware of us being No, around. it's awareness, isn't it? I mean, you know, yeah. I, I could go to Waterstones and Stafford this afternoon and go, hi, I'm from Hobet Books, and they'll just look at me and in say, blank, yeah. what? <laughs> yeah, so what? Um, and the other factor is is that, look, there's, 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 there's no question that the retail market like to have nine to 18 months pre-knowledge of what's coming and a book and and our model is to get you know accept an author work with them on the edit get the book out and it's usually latest you know takes six to nine months for us to get a book out yeah it does depend and And sometimes quicker than that um indie spirit isn't it yeah yeah you move quicker because our principal marketplace is is in the ebook space um and it's not about getting into bricks and mortar retail. So, but if we wanted to do that, then we'd have to step into that slower process. Yeah. And it's frustrating for people, you know, think, oh, well, I've, you know, been signed up. And I, we met, you know, we were going on a bit before the interview, but, <laughs> but I think these are important issues. Um, so I bumped into um, a lady called Yvonne Bannum when we were at Bloody Scotland. And she and I um, were, she still is, um, part of the golden egg academy which was for children's writing and she was working on a manuscript i think it was set in the lake district if i'm right about a water sprite mm-hmm. um uh, it was a lovely story but actually she's been picked up by firefly press for another book altogether independent of what she was working on with the golden egg academy and i said oh that's really exciting when's it coming out you know 18 months two years time mm. You know, that's the sort of lead time that traditional publishers give themselves to make sure that they've done all the, you know, the the, the retail space is aware that something's coming. And you look at the bookseller this week, looking at the children's releases for 2022. Yes. You know, it's 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 a lot slower than our release schedule. And indeed, the pressure we get from from our authors, quite understandably, they want to get the books out there. Um, but, you know, if bricks and mortars is important, then we'd have to make a significant shift in our 
approach. And we have done slightly since compared to when we started. We have slowed down a little bit because we have appreciated the importance of generating interest. So, you know, we're sort of, but we 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 don't see ourselves as, um, like you said, print first, ebook second. We're ebook first, print second. So, we're trying to find the right balance between um, getting the book out at, at a reasonable rate and having enough time to to possibly get our books in books bookshops where we can. Well, we were talking to Angela McMahon last week. Uh, who was doing some publicity for the Genesis Inquiry. And you know, she actually asked us to put back the publication date because the reviewers who were keen to run it, I mean, they write their copy sometimes two, three months ahead if it's in the Times or something like that. Yeah, They've got it all scheduled and written and, and done. Um, and so going to them with you know six weeks' notice is no good. So again, another factor that you know you need to bear in mind. So we we have some decisions to make and... and um, you know, we have to decide what's important and uh, whether we stick with the approach we've got or change to reflect the way the rest of the market works. It's, it's a difficult one. But I, I I, still think that I would rather focus on, you know, not sitting on a book for, for months on end, but maybe there's a hybrid. Where we I, think there, I think that that's what we're working towards. It's, it's, it's a hybrid version of it. And some books uh, lend themselves naturally to be uh, very popular as ebook more than print. And some like Ollie is a good example of I can imagine that that's both actually it's sort of yeah so yeah, yeah I think so I think so well we should get into the interview shouldn't we we ought to really we've been jabbering for far too have long have you got any of uh, the comments that have been made by people um I do it might take me a couple of minutes to um... a couple of minutes we haven't got a couple of minutes <laughs> I know okay um, well you know I, I, I thought we were prepared here well I had Julie Bindle. Um, you have to forgive us as we okay, so dig around. I can remember some off the top of my head. One, uh, so okay, have... I've got one or two here. So, uh, Bella Cooper, this is an Amazon review, blew my mind. I absolutely love this book, incredible. The characters really connected with me, and I loved all the history. Fantastic action, too. That is a good comment, isn't it? Um, so we, well, my personal favourite is uh, one of the bloggers on the blog tour just said, phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal. Well. I mean, we can't get better than that, can you really? Uh, Miss Fitz Farm says, stunning, thrilling and a whole lot more. <laughs> um, a really brilliant read from Donna Morford, who she yeah. actually interviewed Ollie as well this week. And it's a really good interview. And so if you if you find, if you manage to find that, it's worth a listen. Louise uh, from Bookmarks and Stages, we had a drink with at Bloody Scotland, a compelling and intricately plotted legal thriller that it ha- that has the grip factor right to the end. Well, you know, we can talk about it for ages, but let's speak to the man himself, <laughs> Ollie Jarvis. Ollie is a criminal barrister by day, and has been writing for about a decade now as well, legal thrillers. But this is a bit of a departure because it's a whole lot bigger than just a legal thriller. At at the centre of this book, the Genesis Inquiry, is Ella Blake, who is, as we've mentioned, a damaged and slightly washed-up barrister. She's taken three years out of the... uh, Sounds like me, except the barrister bit. Yeah. (laughs) Taken three years out of the legal profession uh, and lived in a van near Lindisfarne um, for uh, for three years. And uh, she has a lot of demons. um, But she is attracted back into the world of the legal world with an inquiry into the missing polymath. 
uh, from Cambridge University. And it just so happens that her daughter is studying there. And this is uh, what attracts her back, plus the £2,000 a day in expenses that she was getting paid as well by de Jure College. Uh, Ollie, uh, as he'll tell us, uh, the origin of the story was actually visiting Cambridge for the very first time with his own daughter, who was aiming to get into Cambridge University at the time. And uh, that proved the inspiration for this wonderful book, The Genesis Inquiry. Let's meet Ollie Jarvis. We're joined by Ollie Jarvis. This is unusual because normally we interview our authors ahead of release of their books. But on this occasion, it's afterwards. Ollie, you're very welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me on. And it's been, well, we're a few days after launch. and it's One day. One day. Okay, a few days, one day. <laughs> it depends when this goes out, love. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's true. But it's gone extremely well. The Genesis Inquiry, uh, your new novel, uh, has been, uh, well, I wouldn't say runaway smash hit yet, but it's on its way to being one of those. Well, fingers crossed. Let's hope so. Take us through the genesis of the Genesis Inquiry then. I mean, your um, literary career, you've been writing legal thrillers, and this is kind of a hybrid, really, isn't it? Because it, it's it's there's a legal, strong legal element to it, but it's a much there's a much bigger scope with this book. Yeah, I, um, I mean, the, the real background, I suppose, of the Genesis is history, and I I love history. I've always been fascinated by ancient things and ancient manuscripts and legends that are based somehow in history um, and I always wanted to try and find a way to bring that into a legal thriller where somebody was having to really go through all of history and, and follow the clues big concepts and big ideas to really make the reader think and I suppose the genesis of the idea was on a trip to Cambridge with my daughter who had an interview a few years ago to read English literature at Trinity Hall. And I came along for the ride. I was the designated driver for the <laughs> weekend trip. And I'd never been to Cambridge. I went to Newcastle Polytechnic back in the day. I, my, I was a terrible student and uh, <laughs> spent my revision time at Stonehenge in 1985, um, trying to... Uh, fight for the right for a free festival but I went with my daughter and all of these lecturers were talking about the bigger picture joining the dots and see seeing the wider concepts and I was completely fascinated by this and hooked and when I came away I was really drilling down on a way that I could perhaps join the dots and, and show a reader a, a much bigger picture mm. and the the Genesis Inquiry then developed from that concept, really. They do talk about that a lot in Cambridge, I have to say. Uh, the bigger picture. Well, I, I mean, having grown up there, yeah. I mean, you know, even it, it sort of trickles down into the, the, ga the town part of the gown relationship. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it's, 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 it's a strange city in the sense that, yeah, you've got some of the, the, the most brilliant brains on the planet. Mm. congregated in one place and you've got the aspiring brilliant brains still being tutored in it and then you've got let's put it this way um another layer of, of humanity where it's all going over my head gov um and i think actually in many ways 
Ollie, you've captured the spirit of the city really well in the sense that there is this sort of um, element of uh, the rarefied atmosphere of these ancient colleges and the prosaic nature of life on, on Parker's Peace or the way the police behave or any of those sort of things. It comes through too. So I, I think you've done, and an, for someone who hasn't perhaps spent that much time in Cambridge, I think you've captured the place brilliantly. Yeah, that was the irony, wasn't it? That one of us actually grew up in, in the city. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's very kind to say that. And I, I, I hope that with this sort of four main characters in the book, it, it comes across that, that everybody has something to contribute and they work as a team and they all have very different experiences, as you say, from the, the great academics to people um, that have completely different experiences, but are also absolutely crucial to the, the solving of, of the mystery of Genesis. Absolutely. So let's go through those four characters, shall we? So you created Ella Blake. Uh, in a nutshell, she's a brilliant but burnt out barrister. She's been living in a in a camper van uh, in Northumbria and Northumberland rather for uh, some years following the death of her partner or husband. Um, and she's enticed back into the legal world through this search for a missing academic uh, at de jure this is a fictional college in cambridge um ella she, i mean what elements of 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 ella uh, are of people you know and how much of it is you know your own sort of creation well i i, I in my other life I'm, I'm a criminal defense barrister um and i I do legal aid work that I, I really believe in that and it's incredibly demanding um, and really kind of takes over your life and everything takes second place to that job. And I wanted a character that really reflected that because so often we read about barristers in the paper or in see them in, in TV and film and they're these incredibly dynamic, successful, confident people. But actually, many of them are really living on the edge, trying to mm. keep some kind of family life going when they're working till midnight every night, often for very little money, um, and struggling with their mental health. And it's only really... in very very recent times the last few years that the barristers chambers have started setting up well-being committees to look after the mental health of barristers and to help them really take some time away from the the daily grind of, of doing criminal trials and ella is really suffering from that and really she only really takes the job because her daughter is at cambridge and that relationship is on the rocks and she sees an opportunity to try and uh, make things right. And the thing I liked about Ella particularly um, is the fact that, um, so I, I think some people have this, like you're saying, this image of, of what a barrister is. But to me, Ella, I, I related to her as a, as a middle-aged woman, as a mother, having this relationship with this teenage daughter, almost more so than the, the sort of the legal side of her. And, and so I quite like that, that she's, She's more than just her job, you know, she's in, in the book. Yeah, she is. And, and I think she's this this time away has given her a great deal of time to reflect on what matters. Uh, and, you know, we all get so 
wound up in our careers and the years turn into decades and we think we haven't done all the things that we should have done and we haven't focused on the relationships that are so important and i think that's a process that ella goes through um throughout the book it, it's it's a story for her of redemption and of second chances before we um, explore the other key characters in the book let's hear i mean i've been narrating i've been very fortunate to be able to narrate <laughs> Uh, the Genesis Inquiry. I'm still working on it uh, when my voice yeah, returns. Yeah, a bit of a break. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've had a sort of interregnum because of, of illness. But um, there is a, a, a crucial scene at the beginning of the book when, indeed, Ella is faced with a rather, well, let's put it this way, um, you know, a tough uh, dinner at a restaurant I know very well, Don Pasquale, on, <laughs> yes. on Cambridge Market Square, uh, where she meets up with her estranged daughter. Ella saw Lizzie first already sitting at the table, centre stage under a white vaulted ceiling. The place was full and a term-time buzz hummed from lecturers and students leaning into their conversations. A wave of regret washed over Ella, seeing the apprehension on her daughter's face, her hands fiddling with a napkin. Ella weaved her way around to the other diners, keeping a smile firmly fixed in place. "'Hi, Lizzie,' she called out, using her best advocacy, to hide her trepidation. Lizzie didn't get up. Ella bent down to administer a mumsy hug, but her shawl got in the way, making her feel like a squid enveloping its prey. She took a seat opposite her daughter. Place hasn't changed much at all, she observed, the tension now obvious. Still got the same tablecloths. Two faux smiles. A waiter came over with a couple of menus, and lit a red candle sticking out of a Chianti bottle. An awkward wait for him to retreat. Lizzie went first. I'm sure they've washed them since you were last here. Ella laughed, grateful for the connection. She took a deep breath. So, how are you really? The flame danced to the tune of her breath. It drew Lizzie's focus. Happy? She picked at the bottle, snapping off some wax. That's great, Ella replied, studying her daughter's face for other clues. Lizzie gave her mother a prickly stare. Where are you staying? The Gonville, she announced in triumph. It seemed fitting with my brilliant daughter being at Gonville and Keys. Lizzie ignored the compliment. And what's the job? Ella put her elbows on the table, beginning to relax now that the exchange had gained some rhythm. Believe it or not, I don't really know much yet. An internal issue at one of the colleges. De jure. One side of Lizzie's mouth curled upwards. You took your first job in three years, and that's it. Realisation spread across her face. Oh, I get it, because it's in Cambridge. Ella leaned in. I thought we could catch up. Properly. Lizzie looked down and straightened her cutlery. It's a bit late, Mum. It's never too late, Ella almost shouted. Then, in a loud whisper, there's always a way back. A way back, Lizzie repeated. Interesting word choice. It's not like you to be so cold, Ella replied, locking into their familiar pattern. Lizzie's eyes did a room scan. 
she said in a louder voice. I learned from the master. Ella felt crushed. Please, Lizzie, let's not do this. Lizzie pursed her lips, then closed her eyes for a moment, and exhaled. The waiter saved them. Two Diet Cokes, Ella suggested. Lizzie shrugged her shoulders. Have what you want, Mum. I'm not your keeper. Okay, Ella replied, fiddling with the tassels on her shawl. One Diet Coke and a large glass of Sauvignon Blanc. The waiter gave a slight bow and left. Lizzie made an obvious inspection of her mother's face. You look different. Really? Ella replied, self-consciously brushing away a few strands of hair. I'm off the fags again. Only been a couple of days. No, it's your clothes. And I know, Ella cut in, unable to stand more. I came straight from Lindisfarne in the van. Lizzie frowned. Why didn't you go home first? Ella felt her body shrink. As always, her daughter had got the better of her. If you hate the house that much, said Lizzie, why don't you sell it? Move somewhere else. Ella's thoughts lurched backwards and forwards. But don't you want the memories? Lizzie looked bemused. It's your house, Mum. The waiter arrived with the drinks. Cheers. Ella clinked Lizzie's glass, frantically trying to move the conversation on. So, met any nice men since you've been here? Are you for real? said Lizzie, throwing her head back. Is that really going to be your first foray about my time at Cambridge? Ella's shoulders dropped. I'm sorry. You're right. Trying too hard. Lizzie gave an affirming nod. The flame stopped dancing. Ella dropped her shawl onto the back of her chair and started again. Tell me about the course. Encouraged by the twitch of excitement around Lizzie's mouth, she said, Three years of history. <laughs> You're so lucky. It's incredible, Lizzie replied, suddenly animated. I'm learning so much, trying to answer the big questions. I'm loving it. Ella's eyes moistened. The big questions? Come on, you know, that's what Cambridge is all about, Mum, she gushed, seeming relieved to be free of their normally guarded interaction. Moved, Ella reached out to touch Lizzie's hand. I'm so proud of you. For a moment there was peace, at ease with their shared history. There was always a way back. Real tension there uh, between Ella, Ella Blake, the heroine of this uh, fantastic book, The Genesis Inquiry, and her daughter, who has the... the I mean, it warms up. Let's put, let's put it this way. There's an arc to this relationship, isn't there? It, there is. And yes, that, that scene really does sort of set the scene of, uh, of their difficult relationship. And for anybody who has or has had um, teenage um, kids, they'll know exactly about that dynamic and the the tension that sort of under underruns every conversation and uh, they're very quick to form their battle lines and mm -hmm. it's so easy to fall into the same way of communicating that you have done for years and that's that's another huge challenge for Ella and and I suppose for Lizzie as well to try and yes. break this way of communicating that they've had for so long. 
I know that only too well. Yeah, <laughs> when I, I speak think to we my both son, do. Yeah. <laughs> oh, bless him. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's wonderful. But so Lizzie um, is studying at Cambridge, and uh, she's full of that youthful uh sort of idealism i think um and and also an expectation that you get when you're that age that you you know you don't see the gray in life you only see black and white and so but you, yeah. you also have this sense of sort of invincibility don't you when you're that age? Yes. there's an element of that but actually that's just masking mm. her own insecurities um she strikes up a relationship with college gardener or at least on the face of it he's a college gardener a guy called jay who's had a very, very difficult upbringing um, uh, in North Cambridge with a drug addict mother. Uh, But it turns out Jay is hiding a uh, a secret talent um, beneath the sort of green fingers. He is. And and I think it was very important when, when writing about the traditions of Cambridge to have a character that was completely modern, up to date, knew everything about what happens right now, today, and uh, set against all of the, the tradition and history of Cambridge. Absolutely. And so Jay is an important part of the the team that sort of quickly established itself, trying to unravel the, the, the mystery of the missing uh, academic and uh, indeed the, the sort of wider questions of Genesis. And then the fourth member of the team comes unexpectedly from the United States, mm-hmm. uh, Hank Brody, a detective from Arizona, um, who is a great character to play because uh, there's a there's a wide eyed sort of um, innocence to him in some ways. And yet there's this very strong, you know, I almost sort of think of him as sort of a. Uh, kind of a John Wayne character in some ways, you know, he can stride <laughs> into, uh, he, he cut, like so many Americans do, they don't see the societal barriers that British people put around themselves. So he'll just march up to somebody and offer his hand a big, broad greeting and not recognise the fact that they're talking to the master of a college or, you know, somebody senior at the British Library or whatever it might be. I, I just love his approach to it. And so he comes into the story and creates a quartet of people who are going to take us on this adventure. Yeah, and he, of course, he's very, very different to Ella, full of her um, anxieties and doubts and constant self-analysis. Brody is a much more relaxed figure, but all of them have this background and their own personal history. And uh, I hope keeps the reader guessing as to who's really on which side. And of course, that's yeah, indeed, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You do keep us on, uh, you know, uh, as a reader, you're off balance a little bit. You don't trust necessarily everybody you meet. And I think that's a that's one of the things that drives the narrative on and, and, and makes you turn the page. Yeah, because one of the reviews we had, um, she put that she, she didn't go to sleep because she just wanted to know what happened next. She just had to keep, you know, digging deeper and deeper and deeper. And I've that. heard that from a number of people. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, 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 it's certainly compelling. Uh, or, as Stephen Fry would put, uh, cons- was it uh, compulsively readable and uh, <laughs> a real winner? Um, uh, there's no arguing with that. Um, in terms of the wider themes, then, I mean, you, you, you obviously captured this, you know, joining the dots, but you've decided this on a certain number of dots to join by the end of the book. Um, how much research did that involve? A, a huge amount. 
uh, I mean, with my other books, which were legal thrillers, because I live in the courtroom, I could literally sit down and write them. Um, this was a completely different kettle of fish. And uh, I had to do a huge amount of reading around world history in order to find the the links that I was looking for and then decide which ones I was going to use because of course I had to keep reminding myself that first and foremost this is a thriller and you have to have three-dimensional characters and you have to have characters you believe in because you can't take the reader on this extraordinary journey that they go on unless you believe in the characters so that was always the priority but I wanted this extraordinary revelation about history and I could only do that if I had my facts right which I hope I have but so um, I approached it really in the same way that I approach a case when I'm preparing a case which is looking at the evidence picking out the bits of the evidence that you think are important and then convincing a jury that you can rely on those pieces of evidence and you can draw inferences from that evidence about guilt or innocence and in, with the book about whether or not you believe in the theory of genesis that works so well um i have to say it's one of those things where when you've read the novel you come away thinking of course it all <laughs> makes sense and so in, in the sense that you have uh you know it it, it, it one say it, it, it you know you look at it deeply it's a confection of, of the evidence that you've decided to propose and, and create this sort of theorem behind that you know the, the, there's an academic who's come up with this you know series of, of connections that that suggest that humanity has is, is being uh driven along by certain connections sorry my phone buzzing away there my son trying to get hold of me probably because he's just heard what I said about him um but but it, it, it but it it's it, to its great strength and I suppose that you know the obvious comparison people are making is that it's in the way that the da Vinci Code uh took certain aspects of history and sort of made it plausible that there was a connection between them all um and indeed subsequent Dan Brown books have sort of mined that area this has that feel to it in the sense I could come away as believing what you'd put forward. Well, and it could be true. Of it could yeah. be true, it, indeed. It, 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 the be verdict, true. I suppose, is for the reader on that. And, I've got, and, and yes, a lot of parallels have been drawn with the Da Vinci Code in terms of a large theory. This is, with the Genesis Inquiry, it's a very different theory and arguably even bigger. Although some would say, what's bigger than the history of the Catholic Church and the history of religion? But religion is one facet of the Genesis inquiry. Um, and I think Brody, that's Brody approaches that in the book. Um, he brings the religious aspect, um, his analysis of it to the book. And the jury is still out on that. Yeah, it's very difficult to talk about that giving too much away. Yeah, it's this is the trouble because I would love to go to, jump to the end of the book and start talking about 
your experiences. But we can't. We can't. (laughs) But let's suffice to say, I mean, you have taken in in terms of the locations you've chosen. um, Some of them are very familiar, particularly to British readers. But there is one key location and we won't give it away where you had to, uh, well, take your life in your own hands to go and visit it um, without giving too much away. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's you know you might describe it as a particularly hairy trip, but uh, so you you've really gone to extraordinary lengths to, <laughs> to bring this all together and, and give us an authentic taste of the places that we're we're talking about. Well, that the, the place that you're referring to, um, yeah, I mean that it was very very difficult to get to, but it was a place that I had to see. I, I'd read a lot about it. It was critical to the story, um, and really the denouement. And but it's an example of so many things that I was reading about in history that made me realize that so much of what I'd learned at school just wasn't right. And we have, you know, we all get this sort of superficial uh, knowledge of history from school. But when one looks now at, at the actual excavations that are happening all the time and his, you know, the discoveries are just so amazing now, especially with carbon dating. I, I realized that I had to completely reassess my understanding of, of history and of how things began for humanity. Um, and I hope, I really do hope that the reader takes that from the book because there are con- for me, some extraordinary revelations. That's certainly how I felt. I mean, I, I it's one of the things that uh, kind of blew me away when I read the book was I've never heard of this said location. I've, this sounds awful that we keep dancing around it, but believe me, we don't want to spoil it for people. But I, I, I was kicking myself because, you know, I studied ancient history. And OK, mostly that the bit I enjoyed was the Romans. Uh, the bit I had to tolerate was the Greeks, um, <laughs> but we're talking about an, a, a civilization far, far earlier than that. And uh, in my ignorance, I'd never heard of the location we're talking about, or indeed the implications for human history. So, um, you know, all I can say to people is listening to this: go and get the book. Yeah, because it, it will it's blow fascinating. Your, it will blow your mind. Yeah, honestly. I mean, you know, I, I've only got A level history, but I'd never heard of it either. So. It's, it's funny because people who've read early drafts of the book were saying to me that they were go- constantly Googling things to see if it was just something that I'd made up because they couldn't believe it. And then when they Googled it, there it was. And they were saying, why didn't I know about this? Why didn't yeah. I know about this? It's extraordinary that we're not talking about this. And um, what I can say is, you know, we, because... I, as British people on this island, we see everything from our own perspective. So for us, Stonehenge is absolutely the most important stone circle in the world, going back 5,000 years and so important for the kind of explosion of um, humanity in terms of settlements. Well, actually, it's not, but that's just the way we see it. And when you widen the lens and look at the world picture, you see where actually Stonehenge fits in to our history. But I think this is an indication also of how we are taught at school, because 
I think the, with a, with a few sort of differences, the way history has been taught has remained the same for I don't know how long. You know, I see it in what my children come back with and tell me what they've learned at school. You learn that the the pattern of 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 history and events. You learn it and you just take it as as that is that that is it. Yeah. You don't have much opportunity to think to question it and think maybe there's something else beyond that or before that or that's that's slightly different or that the historians have ignored or absolutely absolutely and i think that's the thing is history is all about perspective as well and where you come from to look at it uh and and, and going back to what they say at cambridge looking at the bigger picture yeah that's true and i think that history is all about editing in many ways or at least the way it's taught or indeed what we we think about i mean i something that that um I, I spotted a, a few months ago, really made my sort of uh, shook me out of that complacency of, of a Britanno, uh, Britanno sort of centric view of the world is that if you look at Russia and you turn the map around so that it's sort of, um, let's say, for instance, you've got Moscow point and it's, you know, then you look northwards, uh, you obviously go to, you know, the Arctic Circle or whatever, but if you turn it 90 degrees and imagine that you're looking from Moscow to the east, uh, to the west rather, you can see that Europe, mainland Western Europe and the former Soviet countries, it's just a peninsula. Yes. To yeah. something as big as, as Russia. And therefore, you can, you know, immediately just by making that one change, you can see why uh, Putin has a certain approach to life and, and, and you know, that almost um yeah it's a sort of annoying peninsula on to the left of of, of moscow yeah, yeah. Uh, on the map and it just you know suddenly you think oh yeah so no wonder they they behave and think like they do just by doing that it's funny when you it, look another interesting point about looking at a, a world map is when you look at a map now and it's utterly obvious that this was one one piece of land because you look at the way the continents have broken away and if you push them together they would fit perfectly into each other and you can see it's obvious there was this one piece of land that 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 broke up and yet my parents when they were at school and they were taught geography they were never taught that they were never told that because that wasn't the learning now we realize that that's what happened and it's utterly obvious just looking at a map of the world. And I suppose that's a bit of an analogy with the Genesis inquiry, because the revelations in the Genesis inquiry were obvious, obvious to us all. And we spend our lives looking down at our phones all of the time, not looking up at the world and taking in what's happening. And we kind of forgotten what's staring us in the face. Absolutely. Let's um, turn to your day job for for a moment again um, as a criminal defence barrister. I mean, it is uh, an extraordinary role that you play in the judicial system in the sense that sometimes you must know that, you know, you're defending the guilty, but they deserve your every energy and your very best, um, you know, application of your skills and knowledge. Well, I mean, that, that's probably the question 
that I and all criminal barristers get get asked the most. But and the answer is always the same, which is if a client tells you that he's guilty, then you cannot defend him on a trial because you can't right. mislead the court. And he would have to you can say to him either you'll have to get somebody else or if you plead guilty, I'll do my best to get you the lowest sentence possible. But if they tell you that they are not guilty, it's not for the barrister to judge, even if they have a personal opinion. Um, mm -hmm. If you unless you were there and you saw it with your own eyes, you don't know that somebody's guilty and you don't want to usurp the function of the jury. Uh, we have a, a principle called the cab rank rule because it's exactly like a, a the rules for black cab drivers. Yeah. If you flag down a taxi and you only want to go around the corner, he's still got to take you. And if we get a brief, we've still got to take that brief, even if it's a horrible case, a horrible sexual murder, for example, or something like that. You have to take it because it's not for the lawyers to judge guilt or innocence. Everybody gets the same defence. And I remember when I first started out at the bar and was struggling, was struggling with these concepts and a very, very experienced elderly barrister told me a story of a, horrend a horrendous case that he had done years before where he was defending a man who had raped his stepdaughter in a caravan on in a holiday park and the man the stepfather completely denied it and there was a trial he was convicted and got a very lengthy prison sentence and eight years later Eight years after that conviction, the victim, the complainant, walked into a police station. She had been only been, I think, about 10 years old at the time, walked into a police station and said, that case, it wasn't my stepfather. It was a man in the next caravan, a complete stranger. And I transferred it onto my stepfather as a way of now I know as a way of processing it. And. Of course, the man was released on appeal. Uh, but it was a good lesson because nobody wanted to do that case, but the barrister's conscience was clear because he did his best for this man, even though he lost. And you have to work on that basis every time you defend that they might be innocent. Yeah, mm. absolutely. I was watching something yesterday, <laughs> which it could kind of sends chills down your spine when you're watching it, is uh, our current Home Secretary, Pretty Patel, on question time oh, just yeah. a few years we ago advocating the death penalty um she's since gone quiet on that but nonetheless when she was trying to make a name for herself she she quite a strong advocate for it um and there's an example of somebody who presumably if the death penalty was there might you know okay it's rape so it's not not murder but you know it's an example of somebody a miscarriage of justice based on the you know a false accusation and that could, you know, the, the real issues with, um, I think, in, in the current society, um, things have shifted a lot in the sense that, uh, and probably, you know, you might argue for the better, 
that victims are being believed a lot more than they were. But there are other examples where people are being slurred for being, you know, for instance, historical sex offences that they didn't commit. Uh, but, you know, their names are being projected onto things that may have happened to people. So, you know, this is a, a very difficult thing to, to, yeah. to balance. It, it is, you know, one of the sort of famous older adages is that it's better that a hundred guilty people go free than one innocent man is convicted. Mm. Yeah. It, it, it's difficult to balance it. And you're right, of course, 99% of victims are telling the truth. Um, absolutely. But the, I suppose the thing about the, the death penalty is it's then impossible to make things right. And one of the driving reasons that the death penalty was abolished in this country was the conviction <coughs> and hanging of and I forget his first name, Evans, and it was in relation to Christie, Tenerillington Place, yes. who was murdering all of these women that were coming for illegal abortions. And the lodger was initially convicted and hung and posthumously pardoned after his death. But some would say that the real reason that we abolished the death penalty was with because of Ruth Ellis, that yeah. the British public weren't comfortable with hanging a, a woman, a glamorous woman with um, blonde hair. Yeah. But in my, my opinion, I, I think it, it's right that we don't have the death penalty in this country. Um, of course, you do in America, but you, there's an incredibly long appeals process. And, but people are on death row for you know, a decade. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what torture in itself? The question I've always wanted to ask about a, a, a criminal barrister, or indeed any barrister, really, um, the personal feelings when a case finishes and your defendant, uh, your client, has either been convicted or not convicted. In other words, you know, you've won or lost, if you want to be, you know, in layman's terms about it. What is the personal feeling when a case goes either way? What, what impact does it have on you as a, as, a, as a barrister? I try not to get too emotionally involved, um, but I do, I do feel good when I win um, <laughs> because you don't have the headache of the complaining client afterwards and you have to trust the evidence. If I win, then there was not sufficient evidence for a jury to convict. And one thing I have learned over the years is juries do tend to get it right. It's amazing, you know, that the, these 12 lay people come together, but they bring all of their collective experience of life. And if the evidence is weak, the jury see that. And if it's very strong, they see that too. So you have to, I suppose, on the one hand, think that you're just a cog in the machinery of justice and the verdict isn't down to the barrister, it's down to the process and that you trust the verdict. But I am happy when I win. But also you develop a relationship with the client over time. You can't help it. Not a personal relationship, but you're dealing with them, you know, on a daily basis. And some cases can last two months. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when you're in the cab rank of, of, of barristers and, uh, you know, a brief comes along, um, do you, 
I mean, what's the methodology you use to, I mean, it, it, it always struck me. I mean, you were talking about working till midnight. I mean, as if it's like one enormous oral examin examination once you get to court in the sense that you, you're having to cram the night before for whatever might be coming up the next day. Is that, is that, uh, am I right in thinking that or is <laughs> sometimes, sometimes yes. Um, it, it's chaos, you know, at the moment, particularly it's chaos because of the backlog and a lot of barristers have left the profession because of pay and conditions. Uh, and there are so many trials that need to be prosecuted and defended um, that it's, it's, it's chaotic at the moment. And there is a lot of that, but sometimes you do know in advance the trial you're doing because you've been briefed a long time ago but things crop up all the time it's a movable feast and you're preparing a cross-examination and that is dependent on what happened the day before and, and instructions that you're getting and maybe disclosure that you just recently had from the prosecution um so that, yeah there there is a lot of, of preparation and people's liberty is at stake and uh, you feel you have to give it your all and you know your opponent is i'd like to know uh, how how on earth do you find sort of the headspace to get into fiction and be creative and write when you're dealing with sort of quite a high emotional and uh, use, uses obviously a lot of your creative energy your job so how how do you switch off and write when I when I started writing, I would get up at five o'clock in the morning and try and do a couple of hours before court. Um, and it was very, very hard, nearly killed me. But and so now what I do is I book blocks out and I have very understanding clerks and I try and book blocks out and try and write maybe 30,000 words in that block. And if you're writing every day, you can move faster as well. If you can get a thousand words done every day, I find that things can move on much quicker if I have a period of time where I don't have to think about work. But one of the things that I learned from the Genesis inquiry, talking about realizing what's important and reconnecting, I realized that I'd written this book all about camper vans. And <laughs> that was because I didn't have a camper van. So we've just gone out and got ourselves a camper van. So I've got more time in my little tiny camper van with my family. That's so, awesome. So it was a desire. You just didn't know it. Yeah, it was, must have been some some subconscious need. So, instead, so I, I gave Ella a camper van when I really wanted one. And now yeah. you have one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, don't know what I'm going to give my characters that I really want. But anyway, um, it's probably going to be a yacht, knowing you. Yeah, it will be. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, in 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 terms of time away from the from both the writing and the the bar, um, in the legal sense, uh, what do you do to relax? Well, I love walking. Um, I really do love walking. I, I mean, I. I used to play a lot of tennis, but I don't so much anymore. But I, I do a lot of walking and going to specific places. And maybe now sort of thinking about other books, now that I've got the camper van, um, I can really go off and see the places that I want to see. And I'm very keen to go up to 
Orkney on my next trip. I want to see the Ring of Brodga mm. and Standing Stones of Stennis and uh, so many extraordinary historic sites um, just on this island or Orkney and another little island off this island that I've never seen. And I think lockdown has taught me that really, that also there's so much to see here uh, that I haven't yet seen. No, indeed. We had we had the experience of taking the children to Hadrian's Wall at the summer, and um, yes, initially yeah. they were oh, really we're going to see a crumbly old wall in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> but the, it actually did have a massive impact on all of them in a different way, didn't it? So, I think it's yeah, it was it was slow. To, I mean, I, initially I was stonking around, stomping around, going, "Oh, for goodness' sakes, can't you see what you've got in front of you, you, <laughs> you philistines?" Um, and gradually, I, I, it's, it's like anything like this. I mean, at the time. You know, if you're a teenager, your mood may not be matching the opportunity that you've got in front of you. Yeah, Very yeah. often that's the case. And it's only afterwards you actually reflect and go, oh, I'm really glad I went there. I remember being yeah. particularly moody. Um, uh, one time we were in uh, Croatia and we were standing, or was it Bosnia? Uh, standing uh, on the Starry Most, which in Mostar, you know, the famous bridge. Um, and this is the one that was before it was destroyed during the war. And I'm sort of going, oh, God, it's just a bridge. For goodness sakes, what's the point of being here? Why can't You we... sound just like my eldest child. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, I'd much rather be yeah. on the beach. This is ridiculous. Um, but, you know, now I really, really thank that my dad took me took the trouble to take us there because, you know, it was destroyed and it's been rebuilt very, very sympathetically. But nonetheless, um, it was worth seeing. And and you, but sometimes you just don't realise that the opportunity is there. But it is lovely when you get to a certain point in life where, you know, you can write your list of things that you'd like to go and see, and actually go and do it. It's, um, which totally. is, I presume, is where you are in life now. Yeah, and it's so funny what you say, you know, about because with my, when I was a child, I was made to climb Snowdon and Scarfell Pike and do all these mountain climbs which at the time all I did was complain and find it incredibly boring so I can't understand why I make my kids do the same now I have become the person that I yes I I think we all have haven't we (laughs) yeah that's true I mean a little a cube of Kendall mint cake was supposed to motivate me to get up (laughs) Finyak or uh, Sylvan or any of these places in Sutherland um and, you know, we never used to take the, the bizarre thing walking with my father in the 70s and 80s. Well, <laughs> he refused to carry any water. I mean, it's unthought of now. Oh, yeah. But but you say, well, we'll find a stream. And um, <laughs> invariably you wouldn't. <laughs> You'd be dying of dehydration on the Eiger or something. <laughs> but, yeah, it's funny how we become our parents, isn't it? Yeah. It is. Yeah, it just happens. But I think I I, I know I get a pleasure, though out of switching that mood in them so they, they start off sulky while we're here it's really boring and then you see that that wreck that sort of sense of wow this is actually quite amazing i'm actually at the place of whatever it is and i get that's why i do it because i get that pleasure as i've seen it in them and yeah yeah although we're not yeah. talking about the bamborough castle incident are we <laughs> on this trip yeah that was that was a, a very dark day when i got very very angry because someone didn't want to go to bamborough castle or see the beach or any of these other things it was far too much for them to, to bear 
No. Um, well, I, I must admit, I wasn't that fussed with the castle. I was more fussed with the beach. <laughs> you, you do know that it was named the, the best beach in, in the country. It was a lovely weekend. beach. Yeah. Yes. There we go. Um, right. Um, sorry. And and um, we had a very brief visit to your garden, but boy, is that a beauty. Um, that You must be spending some time in there too. Well, I certainly did in lockdown and I thought I ought to start growing my own veg um, as part of my contribution to trying to change the world. And also I thought if I got a greenhouse, it would give me an opportunity to spend a day with my son putting it up. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, though, it, it took us a week to put it up. <laughs> it's the hardest thing I've ever done even with instructions and yes. sort of constantly ringing the helpline unbelievable and it's a tiny greenhouse but we've we did get it up and um yeah we've been growing chilies and um zucchini um, which is a posh name for courgette i think tomatoes we know what you mean <laughs> yeah it's been fantastic really has and, and have uh, you carried on with the growing yeah, well, I mean, it's now we're sort of coming to the end of the season. Um, and so we've harvested everything and we've had every kind of courgette meal you could imagine. Courgette, <laughs> but, um, courgette ice cream. <laughs> yeah, everything. But it's been, I'd never really grown veg before. It's such a basic thing, you know, that, that humanity has done for millennia. And actually growing something from seed and then eventually pulling off these extraordinary vegetables and cooking them was just mind-blowing to me really was yeah so, it, and it really connects us we'll more the, the, the thing is i mean we, we've we've talked about this amongst ourselves that our particularly our grandparents and to some degree our parents it was normal for them to grow um in the garden and grow vegetables and yeah. fruit and vegetables in the garden and within a generation or two that's just a lot of that has gone. Yes. Yes, it's completely. Real shame. Changed. Yeah, yeah. So many things, you know, when I think back to, you know, my parents, you know, I remember my mother would never buy mints. She would put some, put this, she had this thing on the side of the kitchen table, like a mincer, that you put the meat in and mince it up. Absolutely, or, or, yeah. It just so was so different then now if we just go out and buy i mean i'm guilty of it as much as the next person i'll go out buy something come back stick a fork in it to ping the hole and stick it in the microwave for a minute and a half and that's dinner well let's say you've got no choice sometimes when you're on the road i mean this is yeah. the other side of the life of, of a barrister i mean what i love in uh going back to the genesis inquiry there's a scene where you uh where it, which is set at cambridge crown court um which is a building I, I know pretty well because it was it was built opposite the, the main cinema in Cambridge when, when it was first built. And um, it's it's a funny old building on one of the worst yeah. roads in Cambridge, in my view. Yes. Uh, the only advantage is it's got a KFC on it. Um, but <laughs> but there's this scene where you go behind the scenes. Uh, all the barristers are gathering in the uh, in the sort of barristers green room um with their wig tins and i i love <laughs> yeah. i love that detail um you know the the battered wig tins uh and, and and the sort of the panoply of you know rushing in getting yourself ready get your you know getting the the robes on 
um and getting ready for performance i, I think that's brilliant I, I, you know but the other side of it of course is that you're constantly on the road you don't know where you're going to be any given time you must you know must see the inside of a jury's in on a regular basis and a train as well yeah yeah absolutely i mean i mean i've done a lot of writing on trains um but the robing room um that you're describing i mean i spend so much time in robing rooms uh, as do all barristers and it it's a great place because it's where all the gallows humor is about yeah, the case that you're doing but also where a lot of tough talking and the discussions get done uh and often deals get done about cases in in those robing rooms but they, they, it, there's a real character to a robing room and often if you're a barrister from off circuit and you go into a robing room for example in cambridge uh and they all know each other <laughs> and they don't know you it's a bit like first day at school <laughs> yeah it must be like that you know in the sense that i mean how do you approach that because i mean i personally um and i think becca you'll be the same i mean there's nothing we hate more than going into a social situation and trying to get the introductions um you know we'll stand there quietly and hope somebody comes to speak to us i'd probably just get but, my book out and start but, reading but with, a bar- <laughs> with a barrister a lot of it's but you know it's about projecting you know personality and almost putting a performance on from 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 the moment you walk into that room i imagine totally i mean i it, it, you you do and i remember when i very first started and i put my wig and gown on and my bands and getting dressed and everybody in the robing room was laughing at me and really? I had no idea why and then I went into court to wait for my case to be called on I was only a pupil and so I was doing very little small hearings and I was in the call on the side of the court um waiting for my case to be called on and I got a message from the judge's clerk came over and handed me a note which said would you mind taking that pen out of your wig and I had somehow <laughs> pen got caught in my wig and was wobbling around like an antenna on the top oh, of my head. <laughs> and of course my colleagues have decided not to tell me <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the sort of thing that happens to me all the time I'm always getting stopped in the street saying um I don't think you've quite finished tucking your skirt <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that's true you do get that a lot yeah oh I'm back. well the, there's so much um so much more to be got out of let's um let's turn back to Genesis Aquarius just again uh Ella Blake uh, a compelling character in fact all the characters are fantastic are there, and are there any plans to bring her back um that is a very big decision because it's mm. such a massive undertaking. I have got an idea swirling around in my head. Um, and maybe I could go somewhere in my camper van <laughs> to a yeah. tiny little campsite somewhere, perhaps like the one in near Linda's farm that the whole book mm. starts at and park up for a couple of months and really hammer it. Um, but I would love to write another one. I've it's I've just got to find the time, sit down and do it. Absolutely. No, we'd look forward to that. Right. I think it's time, Ollie, <laughs> yeah. that you face the ultimate question, the the toughest. I mean, this is this is uh, harder than any cross examination you may have undergone. Uh, this is the world famous Rebecca's random question. Okay. Oh, right. So 
my random question today is um if you could interrupt the conception of any famous historical figure i don't mean at the point of conception obviously but you know just stop it happening who would it be and why um without doubt it'd be adolf hitler and do you think that would change things though well it would have saved six million jews but might not have been somebody somebody else sort of you know like all the other factors the thing about history i find is you know there's it's not just one single person who affects history there's lots and lots of different factors they all come together Mm. and i suppose if you take out one of the factors it could change it completely but there's always a possibility yeah i i accept that and there were other people that hitler um drew on before he wrote Mein Kampf, and whenever that was about 1926. Yeah. But he had particular characteristics, I think, that enabled him to create a following and then create this whole way of thinking in Germany. And all and the, the characteristics that he had about his own bitterness about being a failed art student um (laughs) all of the things that made him so obsessive um that led to him being a fanatical leader um i suppose there is there would be a kind of twisted argument to say if you hadn't had the holocaust and the horrors of the second world war we would never have moved on and we would never have had the the Nuremberg trials and set up the United Nations and, and and done all of the great things that have been done post the Second World War, but the 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 horrors that he was responsible for in modern history, I think, are pretty unequaled. Um, so yeah, definitely Hitler for me. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, if you look at the rise of the Nazis on. Uh, BBC series there are so many the dozens of opportunities for this for things to take events for people to make decisions that would have uh, had a different outcome but through um, personal you know uh, foibles or folly or uh, expediency uh, decisions weren't taken and it, you know it's this amazing chain of events that led to um, you know him becoming the Fuhrer, as opposed to an elected chancellor, for instance. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it is absolutely extraordinary that, you know, ultimately, yeah, if he wasn't around, then there's every chance it wouldn't have gone that way. But that nonetheless, history is always full of, I love personally, my favourite form of fiction, if I were to narrow it down to just one, it would be the speculative thing, what if such and such hadn't happened? Or, you know, for instance, if you're reading an, an academic books, what if Hitler had made the decision to go for the oil fields as his number one priority after Operation Barbarossa so that basically the right would have had command of most of the Caucasian, uh, the, you know, the, the, sorry, the, the, the oil fields of the Caucasus? Um, it would have changed completely the demographic because A, it would have been denied the Allies and B, he would have actually had enough fuel to, to fuel the war machine, which basically was the last, yeah. which was the thing that, unraveled him in the end um it, you know there are <laughs> but that's just one what if but you know you're right i mean it's 
it's a fascinating question you've asked there rebecca and also you know oh, they always are my questions but you know <laughs> a, a challenging one too uh although you know i mean this is something i talk about in the car with the children all the time so yeah because when they go to school it's about a 50 minute journey we have amazing conversations in the car because they can't escape and we talk about these sort of things you know what the other day i asked them if you could freeze yourself for 100 years and then come out as you are now in the world as it is in 100 years time would you do it and interestingly they seem quite keen didn't they but um I'm, yeah you, you were completely no wouldn't no no, no no on a, on, a, on a purely moral basis that you know you give them the, you give them the time to be around and you make the best of it you can whether it's for the benefit of others or for yourself mm-hmm. um and i think it's greedy to say oh yeah i'm going to transpose that for 100 years and the main reason i don't want to do it is because all the people that you've grown up with and you know give context to your life and and, and meaning won't be won't be around I think that's the critical thing, isn't it? I mean, it it would be a very lonely place because everything that you had a reference to wouldn't exist. And these modern day people would just seem so distant to to, to anything that you knew. Absolutely. I feel already distant and and alienated from the generations coming through behind us. Yeah. Um, yeah. Out of step with them. So uh, goodness knows what it'd like in a hundred years time. But it's interesting, isn't it? That the, the, the 15 year old and the 18 year old didn't think like that at all. They just thought, oh my God, adventure. How exciting. Yes, of course I would do it. Well, these are the boys who won't go into town on their own <laughs> <laughs> without mummy. Anyway, yeah, interesting, isn't it? Listen, um, Ollie, we've taken quite enough of your time um, and uh, we're very grateful for it. Uh, so in terms of, uh, you know, we talked about the possibility of Ella coming back, but in terms of your commitment to, to writing, is it, is it going to be a lifelong passion now? Um, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I've managed 10 years of it so far, so I think I've got another 10 in me at least. So uh, I'll give it a writing go. Writing and growing vegetables. <laughs> yes, definitely, definitely. Yeah, and camping it up in your camper van. <laughs> so, <laughs> no bad thing. Ollie Jarvis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Wonderful interview with Ollie. And um, we are just, it's just one of those things where when I read it, I love the Genesis Inquiry. Um, I just said, look, we've got to sign this guy. (laughs) Whatever (laughs) happens, we have to get this book. Yeah. And um, it's been an absolute delight to work with him. And uh, we're thrilled with the success so far. It's been doing very well. Yes. And I I just had a feeling because our paths crossed, uh, not, not, you know, he, he didn't submit to us. It was just a conversation where he said, oh, I'm writing a novel at the moment. And I said, oh, <laughs> send it to us, which he talks about in his interview anyway. But yeah, yeah so. Yeah, no, that's that's terrific. Anyway, I'm working on the, the audio book. And so, um, you know, fingers crossed, I'll, I'll get that finished eventually. But as ever with these things, it, it, it takes a very, very long time. We've, uh, let's think about our, uh, our week to come. So we've talked about submissions already in the in the programme. We've got that to to, to to look forward yeah, to yeah so we we've we've um we've got more to go through um i'm trying to think oh we have a book publishing this week don't we we have Wayland babes by judy dakin so we're to be talking to judy next week and her daughter who um took part in an interesting way in the project absolutely Wayland babes it's a, it's a brilliant good timing as well it's a fantastic series of sort of ghostly tales set in judy's um you know she's not native to norfolk but that's where she lives and uh it is oh, it's spine chilling oh stuff. i loved it i absolutely loved no, it it's, it an, it's, it's another good. book where at, at the time you were downstairs mm. i was upstairs we were reading at the same time 
And I think I messaged you when I got to the end and mm. I said, oh, <laughs> wait till you get to the end. So that's all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's, 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 a, it's a killer line at the end there. <laughs> uh, but it's wonderful. And Judy's been uh, also narrating for us. At the moment, I'm working through Karina Swan's Blood Loss, which she's recorded for us uh, doing the edits. And uh, she has uh, previously also recorded... Um, uh, stuff for us and i'm trying to remember what which project it was sleeping now. dogs sleeping dogs by wendy turbin of course yeah um anyway uh judy will be our guest next week indeed with, with her, daughter. her daughter yeah. yeah so we're looking forward to that and uh we've got a blog tour for wayland babes as well which starts today as this podcast goes out so i'm looking forward to see what people think mm-hmm. now in other news um i was a bit disturbed by this in fact i was very upset by this he, he gets disturbed easily <laughs> yeah i had a bad night last night uh, but it wasn't about this. It is the news that, um, well, it was an interview that uh, this man did with Radio 5 Live this week. And I'm talking about Sir Michael. Sir Michael Caine has announced that it's his last movie. He's made his last movie. He's 88 years old. And uh, I think when he said this, it was because he hasn't had any offers for two years now mm. not least because very little has been made well, because of covid i mean that's true that, that is a big factor of it yeah and so he i mean it was slightly sort of a sort of wail into the night sort of please you know hire me kind of thing his agents quickly moved to say he's not retired <laughs> he's still available um and he's kind of rode back on that a little bit but you can see his point. I mean, most of his closest friends and contemporaries have passed on, um, notably Sir Sean Connery earlier this year. Yeah, um, that's true. Which, you know, and he wasn't able to go to the, the funeral and that must have been very hurtful. And, you know, a number of his other sort of compadres that, that he was very close to um, from that period in the 60s and 70s uh, are not with us. And, you know, he's the last man standing, really. Uh, but he has got a new film out. It's called Bestsellers. <laughs> and um, it's ironically about the publishing industry. Now, it's quite funny because last night um, uh, I was just about to fall asleep and uh, you started watching a trailer for this, didn't you? Yeah. And normally when he's watching a trailer, film trailer, I think, oh, here we go. So another Star Wars or, I don't know, James Bond again. But my ear was half open and I could hear... And I saw it as Michael Caine as well, and I thought, what's this? It's about books. It's about publishing. I got very, very excited. It looks like a small indie film. Um, so basically, he plays a cantankerous alcoholic. Yeah, where have we seen that before? Um, author, who's uh, uh, basically there's a, a sort of a small indie publishing company which is struggling, run by a couple of millennial ladies. And they, uh, in desperation, get him hold into a contract that he's got. <laughs> for another novel so he knocks one out and then he it's basically about his refusal to go on tour can't stand it so i, I imagine there's been loads of scenes of book signings and stuff where he behaves badly <laughs> uh, but basically michael kane hasn't bothered doing another accent it's just his own accent you know uh and a lot of swearing and um it looks like a lot of fun i mean it's got it's got pretty average reviews to be honest but his performance is, is stand out as usual as you would expect um but it would be sad to think that I mean, it is, I think he's got one more film that he's already made that hasn't come out yet. Yeah. But that, but this was made bef- after that one, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and look, if Christopher Nolan's making something, he'll bound to find a part for Michael Caine somewhere. Who's Christopher Nolan? Christopher Nolan made the Batman movies recently. Oh. 
and Dunkirk. Oh. And Michael Caine has had a part in all of those. Oh. And, uh, you know, um, oh, so in- Inception and things like that. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yeah, they are. Um, but, yeah, I, oh, you know, I think the thing with Michael Caine is that he's going to be one of these actors who dies on the job. Yeah, he will, absolutely. And I think that's why he's feeling a bit distressed because he doesn't want to die not on the job. So he, you know, he's a very aware of his age and well, his like Ollie Reed. Ollie Reed was making Gladiator when he died. Yeah. And so they had to, uh, there was a scene they needed where they had to digitise Ollie Reed <laughs> and, and use some dialogue from somewhere else to, uh, to, to make the whole thing hang together. Well, it's not that unusual, is it? Is it one of the Harry Potter films? Uh, what well, when um, uh, it was uh, Richard Harris, wasn't it? Yeah, who was playing Dumbledore, uh, and then they had to get Michael Gambon in for the future <laughs> films. But no, it's not unusual for for this to happen for people of that age, and you know. And, but Michael Caine's an amazingly vigorous figure, as you know. You read any of his recent autobiographies, or indeed he narrated some stuff for for Audible recently. He was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Still got it. Um, you know, Sean Connery we didn't see for best part of fifteen years on screen because he had dementia. Yeah. Um and uh, but Michael Caine shows no signs of, of that. He just hasn't got the work. So uh, you know, look, if we can find him a project that he'd be prepared to take for pro bono, <laughs> we'll we'll give him a project. I know. He could write a book for us and then he could um have a, we could have a contract for a second book and then <laughs> Well, yeah, okay. Um, well, anyway, we're, we're looking forward to seeing the film. The trouble is, can't find a cinema show. I know, it. I was so upset when you yeah. said not in this country. I think, oh, we well, have well, to well, this travel. Is, to... This is one of the consequences of, look, the Bond film, I went to see it a week or so ago. The Bond film is basically rekindling the cinema-going experience because basically people have stayed away for, for months and there's been hardly anything in the cinemas worth seeing anyway. And suddenly, you know, there's been a phenomenon where People have suddenly rediscovered the joys of a big screen and popcorn and comfortable seats, um, which is great. But unfortunately, it doesn't mean that pretty much every screen is committed to showing the Bond film. So small art house movies, notwithstanding having Michael Caine in it, uh, aren't getting a, a screening anyway. It's kind of like the publishing industry, isn't it? You can get thousands of copies of the most recent popular mm. hardback yeah, poor old Julie Bindle, who is an art house film. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm really still, you know, I'm I'm lighting a candle for her right now. Already, Not I've, in here, I hope. No, no, it would go up in seconds with all the foam around us <laughs> in our little studio here in Staffordshire. Uh, but yeah, look, so Michael, it, you know, you, 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 if it's a question of overdubbing, then I'm available, and also Lewis Hastings does a very good Michael Caine, <laughs> uh, albeit a younger one, but. I think we could between us cover the cover the gaps if they can do the CGI. And I I could do a little bit too. I could. Yeah, oh, but that's that's spooky. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, he doesn't normally hesitate that much, but only when he's in open conversation as opposed to in front of his script because he learns his lines. I want you to do an angry Michael Caine because I quite like that. An angry Michael Caine. <laughs> <laughs> That's just blowing the microphones. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. I mean, she was only 17. Something like that. You know, uh, yeah. Oh, gosh, I, I, any opportunity to do, Michael. Uh, right, well, let's um, let's leave it there, shall we? Um, so thank you to Ollie Jarvis for joining us. Thank you to Judy Dakin and daughter for next week. 
And also thank you to you. Now, if you'd like to know more about Hobeck Books, you know where to go, www.hobeck.net. If you haven't subscribed to us yet, we could win um, a hamper of amazing things. Uh, related to the Genesis Inquiry, indeed, yes. yeah. Some gin and all sorts of goodies. So have a look at that. Uh, subscribe to our, our mailing list. Don't forget to go to our shop page where we've got lots and lots of wonderful things where you can get signed copies of Be Sure Your Sins by Harry Fisher, for instance. Yes. Um, Harry is poised with his pen. I know he, that. He is. Yeah. It's a poison pen. No, <laughs> he's poised with his pen. Um, that sounds like a euphemism. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> what a way. I have to get some smut in there somewhere. It's a hopcast after all. And it has been show number 40. And uh, we'd like to thank you for joining us. Now, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. Every subscriber means a great deal to us. And, uh, you know, we're gradually building the, the fan base. But uh, we've uh, we've passed a, a significant milestone this week. We did, yes. A number of podcasts and downloads. So um, we're, we're grateful we've for all. we had two. Yeah, a bit more <laughs> than that. But anyway, it's it's been... Uh, <laughs> It's it's uh, something we love doing, and oh, absolutely, uh, and we love your support too. But from us, from myself, Adrian Hobart, and myself, Rebecca Collins. Thank you so much for listening, and have yourselves a wonderful, safe, healthy, and creative week. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.